Programmatic advertising is playing a large role in the future of publishing. Some are quick to point the finger at ad tech for many of digital media's ills, but the truth is, well, more complicated. Aram Sakharsharf, the director of ad tech at the Washington Post, is very vocal about the shortcomings of the plumbing of digital media, but he's also just as quick to point out that it's here to stay. I'm Brian Marcy, and this is the Digiday Podcast. Today on the show, I speak with Aram about the many issues that plague ad tech, what needs fixing, and how it gets fixed. Hope you enjoy it. Aram, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, I'm excited to talk ad tech for the next half hour plus, um, but I wanted to have you on um, specifically because earlier in the year, Max, I, I think it was right at the start of the year, Max Reed um, had published a piece um, uh, on New York uh, about how much of the internet is fake. And, and you sort of, you took this piece and really zeroed it in on digital media and had an epic mega thread, um, which really struck a chord. I mean, it's very rare that a, a Twitter thread um, about metrics um, and, and various other things that are deep into the bowels of digital publishing uh, gets, uh, it resonates as much broadly. Yes, it got a lot of attention unexpectedly because I, I write a lot of stuff like that, and yeah. it was pretty much in the same style. Um, I mean, I think a big piece of it was uh, Ellen Pau um, talking about her time at Reddit, and yes. she retweeted it with a, it. the that comment helps. saying, "You know." But what it's drove true. you? I mean, this, there seemed to be you were linking to things that had already written some Digiday pieces. Thank you. I wish <laughs> there was more, but that's on us to to do more truth telling. But it seemed like a bit of frustration that led to this. It was a bit of a cri de corps. Well, I think what it is, is this is known information. Um, most of the thread was, like you said, linking to old things, and some of those things were very old. Um, I sort of stumbled into ad tech by accident, um, just working as, a, as an engineer at a publisher site and trying to make everything work, and it became uh, evident very quickly how little of the ad tech world was functional. Um, there were millions of dollars going into companies that just weren't working. But as an engineer coming into this, um, what were your expect expectations about advertising technology? And then what did you find? Um, I mean, to be blunt, I expected it to work and it mostly didn't. And when I started Delving into ad tech, it was at a, a B2B magazine called CFO. Mm -hmm. um, and so most of our ads there were direct sold. And so we got a lot of time to talk with advertisers over where their analytics didn't match up with our analytics. Um, and so what I found out was because I had written my own analytics code and I knew exactly how it all had worked and I could compare it to what was going on on the advertiser side, it became evident that like, they just were a lot of these ad tech companies that were not measuring and claiming mm -hmm. they were. Is this a technical problem, though? I mean, as an engineer, is this just like a, a, a problem of the scale of the Internet and, you know, the ability to, to do this? I mean, it seems like, you know, we're, we're doing some fairly advanced things with engineering these days that this would seem to me as a non-engineer a solvable problem. A lot of solvable problems, it would seem. Yeah, there are a lot so of why aren't they, problems. So why, why are these problems, and, and if you could list the problems, <laughs> um, you know, not all of the problems, but maybe the top five problems, and then mm -hmm. we'll go through about why they're not being solved. Because, you know, my, my instinct is that 
the, that these things are architected this way because someone has uh, business interests at, at play and, and that usually trumps solving problems. Yeah, I think that's very correct. Um, so what are these five problems? Give me, give me so five, let's see, the, the top, top five. five. I'd say the first one is that the supply chain where the ads pass through before they hit a publisher site is too unclear. There's no transparency into it. It's very difficult to sort of, if you see a particular ad, then figure out how mm -hmm. it got to you. Um, that's Which seems like a very simple thing. Like someone is going to buy an ad, it's going to show up somewhere. Um, you know, it, it would seem like in other transactions, that uh, similar transactions, that uh, there wouldn't be this convoluted, opaque system um, that is, I believe, our previous, uh, one of our previous guests, John Steinberg, uh, had called it impossible to diligence. I don't even know if that's correct <laughs> grammar, but... I mean, the, it's funny because, like, this is the problem that a lot of these ad tech blockchain startups have come into, this idea of, oh, we're going to use the blockchain to track every transaction. But to be honest, the problem is not that we can't track every single transaction that brings an ad to you. Mm -hmm. On a technical level, that would be fairly easy to do. Like, it just requires everyone involved to cooperate. Um, but everybody has sort of siloed off their own separate piece of the ad tech ecosystem and made sure that none of it talks to each other. And that is what part of the problem is. I mean, let's say even in an extreme situation, you might have something like 10 or more hops between an advertiser putting an ad onto the system and the, and the ad itself showing up in front of you, right? It goes through... Um, an exchange and a different exchange. It may be something to make sure it's targeted correctly. It may be three different viewability wrappers. Um, just one thing after another there. Um, and none of these things talk to each other, but these are all like server transactions. There's a record of them somewhere. And if we decided to say, we're going to put these all up into a, a database somewhere, we, we could do that in the ad tech industry. It sounds great. Let's do it. Um, but yeah, no one wants to because I think you're right. The the obscuring of it is part of it. And that, I think, leads to you know, talking about- But what about is being obscured exactly? I mean, there's a few things being obscured, right? Mm -hmm. So I think what's being obscured is who is seeing the ad, Okay. Um, how they are seeing the ad, and that gets to viewability, but it's also getting to video and how mm -hmm. long the video is seen, where the ad is appearing, and how much of the money is going towards actually showing the ad versus this wide set of middlemen in between. Ah, that final thing seems like that might be the critical issue. <laughs> yeah, it, it's very <laughs> Is much. it too basic for me to go to the money first? Uh I mean, I think the the money is the problem. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you look at something like the the Guardians experiment. I think this is now a few years ago, yes. where they ended up suing their ad tech vendor um, because they found out that all of this money was being extracted in this middle place. Yeah. Um, no, the, no, this is not to say middlemen do not provide value. Yeah, if if they provide value, but they don't all provide value. Certainly they do not provide enough value to eat up 70% of an ad buy, um, okay. which is what happened at The Guardian. Yeah, and how broadly applicable do you think that is for many, I don't wanna say premium publishers, but like high quality publishers, because everyone claims they're premium publishers. Um, I mean, there was just uh, a report recently that said 
something like f- a very similar number. I think that publishers were only receiving 40% in, of the overall buy. I'd say it's pretty standard that there's a lot of these middlemen that are sucking up this this purchase power. Um, mm-hmm. And some of it's in clear ways and some of it's in not clear ways. Like sometimes you end up um, negotiating, if you're an advertiser, end up working with an agency and the agency puts on a whole bunch of different metrics and you're aware of that purchase. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's buying into these different exchanges and bids. And if you're an advertiser, you may have a little bit less awareness of that. But I mean, at the end of the day, so much of what is obscured has to do with the metrics. Is that is that the second thing? Can we go into the second yeah, issue? Yeah, the second related? the second thing is the the, the metrics, metrics are not metrics clear suck. enough. Um, and very often we're not even measuring the right thing. My favorite terrible metric is uh, viewability itself, right? Which there are entire companies dedicated to doing basically nothing but measuring viewability and all doing it completely differently and coming up with completely different results. Right, which is clearly silly. Like there's there's only one way to measure viewability and there's only one result that should be coming back. And if you're getting 10 different results, then what you have is nine or possibly 10 different companies lying to you. You just got to choose a lie and then like sort of build around that one. Well, I mean, that was the whole uh, controversy that happened recently in the agency space yeah. around clawbacks and, uh, and, and that sort of negotiation around what is viewable and how you report it to one side and how you report it to the other side, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and that's not even getting to the fact that like viewability as a metric itself is incredibly silly, for lack of a better term. The, the last time I checked, uh, and please check me on this, I believe it mm-hmm. was that an ad is at least 50% in view for one second? It depends. I, I mean, mean, well, it depends. I mean like Group M's got its, its thing. Right, it, right. But, but I think that's the IAB standard right yes. now. Yeah. Um, and like if you think Why is ab- that flawed? Well, I mean, think about it. If you saw half of a half of a billboard for one second, would you consider that you had seen that ad? Um... <laughs> I don't know, but the billboard people don't have to, to nobody knows. I mean, the, the opposite side is, you know, the billboard, you know, the uh, operators, like, I got this space on the side of I-95, like, do you want it or not? There's like, I don't know, they probably say like, hey, every day, like 200,000 cars pass this and they have a purchasing power of, I don't know, we bought some data and made it up. Um, but digital media is held to a different standard. Right, but that's because we have all of these invented metrics that are yeah. there and that nobody can actually confirm. I mean, at the end of the day, what you are really buying is, hey, there's an empty space on the side of my website. Right. Like Here's the, the people the who are I-95 there. Just who like the guy the on I-95. <laughs> I mean, the, the publisher side can deliver more dynamic metrics because they have the direct connection. Um, and advertisers can buy things more directly. I mean, direct sales is a whole Mm -hmm. other element here. But like when you're going through programmatic, there is a a technical obstacle there as well in terms of measurement, which is that as you pass through all of these different layers, the overall reliability possible goes down. Things can malfunction. Things can load slowly. Let's say a a V-paid tag, for example, which can theoretically load- Explain- uh, what a v-paid tag is. So a v-paid tag is the mechanism by which a lot of publishers manage video pre-roll and post-roll, mm-hmm. which is they have a tag that comes from their ad server, and then that ad server tag will call another ad server, and then that 
set of calls may go four deep. Um, and that, uh, or more. I'll get the right ad to, to load. I'll to get the right ad to load, but also that depth can apply to metrics as well. Mm-hmm. So like you may have to go a bunch of layers deep before you hit whatever uh, endpoint is measuring a pre-roll has played, right? Yeah. And you look at something like that, which is uh, VPAID is old technology to begin with. Um, it's XML, which is a, a language that has, for good reason, fallen out of use in a lot of spaces. Um, and it requires server requests for each of those hops. So the idea- That has to add latency, right? Right. So trying to get the video to play quickly um, at, a, at a previous job, I spent a long time figuring out how to optimize VAST and VPAID tags, which are similar, though VPAID is more complicated. Mm-hmm. Trying to get just the video to play, like the baseline requirement of this standard, trying to get the video to play quickly so that someone's not sitting waiting, watching at a loading screen waiting for an ad to load is a challenge because every one of those server requests has to be made. You have to do go through a whole process where your computer says, hi, this is me. I'm going to shake hands with you. And the other one says, okay, shake hands with me. And then mm-hmm. like back and forth. And then that happens four times. And then each of those servers has to be fast enough in their response and have the asset in the right place and have mm-hmm. no error. And then on top of that, you have to do that another set of times with the analytics, the the pixels um, that say this video has played, this video has reached a quartile, that type of thing. Yeah. And that process is going to be slow and error prone no matter what, because there's so many different pieces of infrastructure called into play. Right. And so who is the big loser in that scenario? I mean... Like most of the ad tech space, the big loser in those scenarios is the advertiser whose video probably won't get seen Mm -hmm. and the publisher who won't register the impression that will get them paid. Um, But everybody in the center makes all of these nice transactions. Which the funny thing about that is that the advertiser um, who is paying money to to run the ad and the publisher who is um, aggregating the audience are the two most important people in that arrangement. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hence your thread, I think. Yeah. All right, what's the number three big thing to solve? I think the other thing is the the technical requirements of an individual ad, how, how these things operate. The issue is the standards put upon most ads in the programmatic space are not particularly strong from a, from a code and engineering standpoint in terms of what type of code you can put in there, what type of uh, scripts can execute, what type of capabilities an ad might have within the ad space. Um, and that's led to a lot of issues like the the browser hijacking problems that have been experienced by some publishers or on the more extreme mm. sides, the situation that Forbes had where their ad tech was uh, installing malware on right. users' computers. And uh, ads do not need the type of Are capabilities. We, is, this, is this like the redirects too? Yeah, the redirects too. Okay. Because I, I mean, think everyone has experienced that even if they're not deep into the ad tech weeds where you click on a link uh, on your phone on Twitter, you think you're going to site X, uh, but then all of a sudden you're, you're, you're told you're downloading some game from iTunes. Well, yeah. why, what, let's just actually demystify this and we actually wrote like some sort of we used to do these like unsolved internet mysteries pieces i'd like to get back to them why does this happen 
I mean, talk about a bad experience for a user <laughs> that hurts like a publisher's brand. In order to uh, satisfy a lot of the requirements that especially metrics tools have and ad tech middleware tools have, um, there is a lot of capabilities allowed to ads that exist within a site. Um, and those technical capabilities to do things that would seem to be like underlying requirements like viewability measurement. Okay, or, so it's to solve like what seems like, you know, something that should be solved. Like, and so it's like, okay, well, we're going to need to fix this because we're always like tinkering and, you know, the advertiser wants this or the DSP wants that. And so then we're going to allow this. And then there's a lot of bad actors out there and they just take advantage of these things. Yeah, I mean, the it, it's not so much that it's allowed, it's that it isn't blocked. Right. Um, and that's mostly because the tools to block those types of capabilities would be in that middle level, at the exchange level. Um, there's uh, a whole host of technical fixes that could happen that could make these problems go away forever, depending on what your... Um, your perspective and place within the ecosystem is. But I mean, like a basic one could be like if uh, Google decided tomorrow, for example, that their ad server would only serve AMP ads. They have AMP ad capability. And I'm not a huge fan of AMP as a standard, but I like the idea of an AMP ad because Mm -hmm. one of the things that AMP does is it heavily restricts the type of JavaScript that... uh, that bad actors abuse, right? So if Google decided tomorrow all ads... And it loads the content first. Yes, yes. Um, As a user, I like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) But all ads are AMP ads uh, through the Google ad server. All these problems would go away right away. Like that that decision would be the end of it Um, because AMP doesn't allow all of the JavaScript tools that... Uh, these bad actors are leveraging. And will Google make that decision? Not really, because it would cost them money. Yeah, that's true. But isn't this sort of the irony of the internet overall is that the fact that it is so decentralized, um, and that was like its greatest strength, um, is also its greatest weakness, right? And so I always think of, I always go back to like the pop-up scourge Um, like 20 years ago. And the only reason the pop-up scourge was solved was because of Microsoft and Google, um, and I guess Apple with Safari at that time, maybe not as much, just shut them off. And so like everyone wants to have a democratized internet, an open internet and stuff like this, but a lot of the problems that are spawned by like an open decentralized system seem like they can only be solved by having what, what everyone hopes to be are benevolent dictators. I find a lot of times the dictators start benevolent, but then they go in a different direction. Yeah, I mean, Mozilla too, (laughs) to their credit. That's true. Um, But I think, you know. But how can you balance these two things, right? Like every, like in particular publishers love to whine about the duopoly and and whatnot. Um, But at the same time, a lot of the issues seem like they need to be solved by a giant company like Google. Mm. I just mean, putting its foot down. Yeah, I mean, certainly that could solve some of these problems. 
but it, it's about like where and how. Like, like I said, that solve that I mentioned earlier could come from the ad server level. We don't need to change the nature of the internet by changing how a browser interprets a web page um, in order to make that fix happen. Um, but I think that probably the problems will be solved two ways. I, I think, you know, browsers get frustrated and make changes. Um, and that's how we stopped pop-ups. Mm-hmm. But I think the other thing is going to be regulation. I think it's like it's very clear that people and citizens are more and more concerned about their private data and more and more aware at the ways in which it's being used and abused. And it seems to me that there are companies now that just no longer have excuses and are getting brought up in court, um, mm-hmm. especially under GDPR. And so we're going to see regulation come down in the next few years. The California Privacy Bill, of course, but I think other state-level laws will happen, and that's going to change things significantly. And at some point, it's just going to like solidify. Right now, none of it's solidified because GDPR is not uh, defined on a technical level. Uh, mm-hmm. On a legal level, sure, but as far as an engineer is concerned, there's a lot of stuff in there that is too loose. Yeah, Um, (laughs) It certainly wasn't written by engineers, I don't think. Um, It was definitely a political decision. I think a lot of people criticized it for being a political decision. But I don't know if necessarily GDPR will end up to be, you know, a bad thing. No, I don't think it would be a bad thing, or is. Well, I got a lot of criticism by people who, you know, businesses were being impacted really by it. And they're like, oh, well, it's very vague and stuff like this. But this is how... This is how governments inch industries into uh, really changing outright how they operate. I'm interested to see what the impact will be when, when you have the California bill come into um, effect. I think there's seems like there's gathering mo- momentum to actually do something on a federal level. We'll see. There's always been this assumption that people don't care. Um, and the industry is kind of like hid behind that. I don't know if that's going to hold true. No, I don't think I, I don't think it was ever true. I just think people were not clear on what the problem was when the website started slowing down and they started getting awkwardly targeted ads and they were like, What's going on? I don't know like it. And like I can see why this happens, though I don't agree with it. For a long time publishers and media sites got the blame because that's where people saw the ads and that's where people experienced the slowdowns and that's where people got, mm-hmm. you know, these malicious events happening, um, as they did as we mentioned before. But wait, it is possible publisher's fault but publishers have so little leverage within this system to do it anything about it right and that's why at a legal level i think we need to see this regulation come into place and to make things happen to force that vast black box that is the middle space of advertising technology um, to to reform, um, to change. I mean, we saw it a little bit in GDPR, and I think we'll see it a lot more as legal challenges go forward. But uh, actually, I believe Digiday did a great article talking about GDPR, consent string, fakery, and leakage. Yes. Um, and that's a great example of how like these Just things Davies, will be... She can't get enough of this stuff. <laughs> she loves it. Yeah, um, but that's a great example of how these things will be um, challenged and then law will have to be put into place to 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 sort mm-hmm. of solidify it. But I think like the problem is that the programmatic marketplace has so much power to make 
to make the internet work at scale. Um, it cannot be avoided. You know, I think there's a, there are a lot of people, especially- Can't just shut it down. Right. There are a lot of people who talk to me on Twitter and are like, ah, oh, the trick is all, of, uh, all publishers to just go back to only supporting direct sales. And the problem with that is that the scale of direct sales is built upon a model in which we understand exactly what our distribution is. But on the web, our distribution changes from day to day. The number of people who show up on a site on one day is not the same number as on another day. And the number of people who show up on a site, and this is sort of getting into another major problem mm -hmm. uh, that has given rise to this is that infrastructure costs web infrastructure costs money it costs money for publishers it costs money to all of these middlemen it costs money to whoever's hosting the advertisement um and direct sales is not going to cover that for large publishers i mean just look at what's happening at buzzfeed right now right they yeah. waited a long time to implement programmatic and it's clear that it's probably been too long unfortunately so just to be clear i mean you're yeah. you're an engineer yeah. you're not a you're not anti ad tech you're not like some no. privacy advocate here who i mean uh, i do advocate for user no, no, privacy no, but i know but, <laughs> but sometimes you know even the messenger does matter i think you know what you're saying is you know ad tech itself just needs to be reformed because ad tech is not going anywhere. It's going to be even more important than ever in the future. There is a, a need for the type of thing that programmatic advertising provides, which is the idea of monetizing um, traffic as it scales at scale, um, which is to say the more people who visit your site, the more it is going to cost you. Yeah. And so you need to make more money to cover yeah. that. The Washington Post breaks some gigantic Trump story. There's <laughs> no way direct sales is going to be able to fulfill the demand um, that is going to be generated at that. And those 10 minutes in that like one hour where millions and millions of people are going to be like hitting that one particular page. Yeah. I mean, there is a real challenge in that type of behavior and it is, you know, so intrinsic to the internet. This isn't just a social media thing. People sometimes will say, oh, this is just Twitter or this is just Facebook. But like you, you roll it back and you can see, you know, the Drudge Report would send these huge lumps of right. traffic at people, right? And it still does. Um, and that's like a great example of mm -hmm. exactly the problem that this needs to solve, which is the Drudge Report, when it sends that huge swath of traffic, those are not your normal users, those are, unless unless you're like no, a conservative no. website, but you're probably not. Even links we to used a lot to have a comment ones. section, and then got listed on Drudge a few times. And I can <laughs> I can say without a doubt that the the people that Drudge Report sent us are not the regular Digiday users. Judging on the comment section, yeah, yeah, got and, wild in there. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, but when Drudge sends you that bump as an organization, you have to pay for supporting that traffic or you have to say, sorry, we're shutting down the website to everyone right. over this From number Drudge. of people today. And that's not good for journalism either. Right. So final thing I want to talk about, because that was at the root of, of, of what Max wrote about, um, is fraud. Um, there's always been this notion that, you know, there's infinite supply on the internet. Um, but I think that is is assuming that um, that everything is real. Um, how much of of the internet and of digital media is quote unquote fake? 
I mean, it depends on who you ask. Some people will say 30%. Some people (laughs) will say 90%. I think it's probably closer to the 90% side than the 30% side. Explain what that means. Well, the, the traffic, the users, the websites, I mean, we, I've worked at companies where we have, uh, bought traffic, which is something a lot of publishers do. And, uh, I was, uh, ended up scraping us back tons of money because we'd go through a legitimate, uh, well-known, um, traffic provider and they would send us tons of fake traffic. Um, and it was very obviously fake. My favorite, uh, Mm -hmm. test for fake traffic is, are we getting more click-throughs from a website than complete says that website gets in a year. <laughs> like it's not a difficult thing to measure. Um, you just have to check and it happened very often. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of, so first of all, there's a lot of websites that are designed to simply capture user, uh, fake users and use that to get high value ads. Um, a good example of that is when I was backtracking through a number of um bad ads that were showing up in the, the chum box area of some sites. Um, the, the, uh, the chum box area is, um, you don't have to call out the providers, but it's the sort of related articles um, area that you see at the end of many um, news articles. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, obviously, some publishers have a better time with it than others. But um, when we were backtracking, we'd end up at these very... Uh, obviously fraudulent sites, things where it was just stolen images and um, made up stories and slideshows. And my favorite one of those, and there's a screenshot on my Twitter somewhere, every single ad on the site that we landed on was pinned to the page so it would scroll with you, but only 50%. So it was shoved to the side, so only half the ad was visible. But of course... That's viewable. So I'm sure they were making plenty of money, um, but you could never see the yeah. whole ad. And so what we saw, though, is in the recommended stories of these very clearly fraudulent sites, you would see uh, prompts to go through to uh, like legitimate news publishers, large-scale legitimate news publishers who were buying traffic as you can. And I mean, depending on how you do it, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but the the thing was that what these what it became evident uh, working with um, some other folks who I'm familiar with in the ad tech space was that uh, basically these sites would have bots that would travel around the web to legitimate publishers and acquire cookies and then make themselves look like they were a high value user and then they'd return to the home base and then that home mm-hmm. base would get nothing but high value users and so then it got a whole bunch of high value ads because that was that the pattern was for users like that um and basically what was happening there is you know it's just fake users and that's the problem with like how difficult it is to keep track of what's going on like if you saw that your ad was showing up regularly on like you know listicles.com which don't go to that because i think it's a real thing and still in existence um (laughs) But if you're if you were an advertiser and you saw that your ads are showing up on listicles.com slash brovirus or whatever the hell it was called, <laughs> um, like you wouldn't want your ad to show up there. And like there's been this move towards brand safety, but it doesn't seem to have 
worked in terms of mm-hmm. the the larger programmatic space. And the losers here are. I mean, the publishers who are not getting the legitimate ads because yeah. they're being drawn to these fake sites and the advertisers who are having their ads shown by these these fake sites to fake people. I mean, that's not even getting into like uh, he had a, a video of like people, a whole bank of phones that were being clicked on by various things. Right. Um, and then there's like click unders and, and bars that allow you uh, that allow your browser to be hijacked. I mean there's there's so much mm-hmm. ease and potential and use of fraud and like for even the most conservative estimates to be pretty much m- in every case more than a quarter of the 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 network of programmatic ad tech means that like the amount of actual fraud must be so much larger so the final thing is i mean all of this taken together if you're the cmo at a large brand it has to at some point just impact trust like because i think trust gets thrown around a lot but at some point you know i think top marketers are and and possibly the cfo if the cfo is be like what are we throwing our money at this for we've been told that we need to shift all of our budgets and and people you know you, the CMO, let's say the CFO, have been bragging about how much of, of the budget has moved uh, to digital. And now all of a sudden, what I'm reading about is that at best, a quarter of this is completely is completely fake. I mean, at some point, like that is really going to dent really trust overall, even for the good actors, right? Yeah, I mean... We've seen uh, advertisers pulling back from the the programmatic space because of these conflicts, which, like I said, there is a need for programmatic. And this is sort of like putting us in a strange liminal space where we need them to be more responsible as advertisers buying ads. But at the same time, like we need them to be in this space as well um, in terms of the perspective of of publishers. and it's very difficult to figure out what the right place is. You look at like maybe more reliable exchange networks, um, for example, TrustX. Mm-hmm. But like at the same time, it's it's very easy to see how advertisers can lose trust in the system when there's no transparency and just every solution seems to be add more technology to this stack of technology, none of which seems to be solving their problems. Um, I mean, I think that's why there's been... I think so much unearned credulity towards these blockchain approaches mm-hmm. because the whole idea of blockchain is, oh, everything's transparent. And But like the, the problem is not that there is not a method to make this transparent. The problem is that the people in the middle have no desire to make it transparent. Right. Um, and if, and that's not going to be solved by adding yet another piece of technology, right? At some point, um, if there's not legislation, which there will probably be legislation, and if there's not browser changes, which there will probably be browser changes, you know, on the other two sides of this, we can try and put security measures in um, to make, you know, things as safe as possible and as, as effective as possible on the publisher side. Um, and, you know, most top-line publishers are doing that. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly, it was one of the reasons why I, I came to the Washington Post was um, I met... Jared Dicker, who has previously been on your podcast, and he came to me and he was like, hey, do you want to fix advertising technology um, from the publisher perspective? And I said, yeah, like there's a lot that we can do as publishers. And, you know, 
we do a, a lot of us are doing things in that respect but at the same time it needs to be stuff it's done on the advertiser side issue. yeah there, there's an ecosystem issue there there's there's so many cool and interesting things that could be done in the advertising space if only there wasn't this just massive load of malfunctioning antiquated badly coded software that came with every single ad like every single programmatic ad is just loaded down with this stuff and like if you are a advertiser why do you need 12 viewability verification <laughs> right like I think that that's a question that needs to be asked, and it's very difficult because there's a lot of intermediaries, right? Their advertisers bring stuff in-house, and when they do, they can ask some of these questions themselves when they start becoming their own agencies. But if you're working with an agency, then you have to have the conversation with the agency, yeah. and the agency has its own set of uh, like interests and perspectives and, and sort of goals and requirements. There's There's a lot that can be done, but adding another layer to the programmatic exchange stuff is not going to do it. There's a point at which you have to say, we are willing to give up a certain degree of potential savings mm -hmm. or, or earnings in order to make our systems transparent and clear and to make sure that, you know, we are not ending up as vectors for stuff that's to the detriment of our users. And yeah. that's users from a publisher's level or users from a, an advertiser level. I mean, there's a lot of fake ads yeah. that use and to be real clear, ads and, as, and like, as like a cover. You know, not to be too like sort of, high, but like society and democracy in general, because um, beyond like not funding um, legitimate news providers, a lot of the opacity and the issues and the fraud of this, of, of the ad tech system have been used to power true fake news propaganda and to make it actually profitable for those Macedonian teens to, right. to, to engage in this. Yeah, well, I think you've hit it right on the head. The The core of that problem is that's profitable. I'm sure that there are bad state actors out there who are interested in, in destroying democracy or however you want to phrase it and who don't mind losing money on it. But at the same time, the the system makes it profitable. And so that makes things so much more massive. I mm -hmm. mean, there was a great article back when we were like people were first diving into the fake news stuff at NPR where they interviewed this guy who was just making a living doing fake news on both sides, right? And yeah. like that type of behavior, like that dude, there's probably like dozens more like that person. And making it so that that behavior is not profitable would go so much longer and so be so much more effective than being like, oh, let's change how our internet interacts with the Russian side of the internet. Right. Fixing that middle space, trying to take, looking at a, like my favorite uh, chart is looking at the, the MarTech Lumascape mm. between 2011 and now, where it went from uh, under 200 to somewhere around 7,000 different products in less than a decade. That's not a legitimate space when that happens. Okay. You don't, <laughs> You don't need 7,000 plumbers to fix your pipe, you know? <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you. 
And thank you all for listening. Our producer is Aditi Songal. If you have feedback, please do write me. I am brian at digiday.com, or you can also tweet at me. I am at bmarsi on Twitter. Um, or please take a moment and leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you are listening to this podcast. This helps our podcast be discovered. Or tell a friend about it, like Dane Cardiel did on Twitter. He said, needless to say, Digiday's podcast has been a great staple for the last four years. I particularly like how wrong biz execs triangulations tend to be. Okay, well, thank you, Dane. Uh, but, and also, Marius Carlson, um, who, who took to LinkedIn, actually, uh, to say that Digiday podcast is a, quote, must listen all the way in Norway. So thank you, Marius. Glad to know our brand has made it to the Nordics. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode. 